Welcome to the Q Podcast Show, where we discuss ideas, innovations, and thought leadership in frontier areas such as AI, machine learning, and finance. This podcast is the fourth part from the Machine Learning and Finance Guest Lecture. In today's session, we are joined by Dr. Matthew Dixon from the Illinois Institute of Technology, Dr. Igor Halprin from Fidelity Investments, and Dr. Paul Bilicon from Imperial College London. Our speakers spoke in a fireside chat about the topic of machine learning and finance and answered questions from the audience. Now, on to our speakers. How about we, you know, jump to the to the fireside chat session? I know uh, a lot of questions are coming in, so I have some questions. So this was this was an excellent presentation, and thank you so much for making the time to you know present today. Um, so I usually do this. It's uh, just to kind of set the mood for our fireside. I got a um, a fireside background with the real fire in the background. So um, it works well for the fall season with an apple cider, hot apple cider, I guess. But uh, we'll kind of, you know, set the mood. And um, so uh, the, for today's, I uh, think we are getting some questions on the YouTube streaming channel too. So I'm going to consolidate some of the questions we get there and also some of the questions we have been receiving on Zoom. Um, so we have a question um, on... Um, rigorous outlier elimination and then switching to a simpler. So can we uh, perform a, a more rigorous outlier elimination and then switch to a simpler statistical model than a lot more complex neural network? This way we can deal with downside risk without compromising model complexity. Uh, any thoughts on that? On It's a modeling technique question. Should we go ask the neural network to capture all the idiosyncrasies in the, the data we are seeing or Maybe just uh, you know eliminate outliers, build a simpler model, and then augment it for if-then-else kinds of conditions. Um, yeah, so I, I, I mean, I'll take this. Um, so I think you know, there's uh, the first way of answering this question, and that's around the bias-variance trade-off. And and so with the bias-variance trade-off, as, as I'm sure you know, um, there is uh, a question of how much regularization or auto shrinkage you need. So mm-hmm. that you are essentially not, um, you know, overfitting on the ensemble data, and you're trying to ensure sufficient um, or sort of minimum variance, so that the performance ensemble has a little bit of bias, but it actually does better. It does, uh, you know, it doesn't perform uh, nearly so worse uh, out of sample. So that's the bias variance trade-off, where you introduce some bias uh, in the uh, hope of capturing better out of sample performance, less deterioration. In the ensemble and ensemble performance, so that's one way of thinking uh, about about this kind of problem. Now, I think the answer about capturing outliers is um, very much an application-driven type of decision. And if you go back to the factor modeling examples, you know, if you compare the mean squared error between uh, you know linear models, lasso, and deep learning, there's really little of a story there. All the interesting uh, content is in the tail regions of the distributions, mm-hmm. and um, and so that's actually a slightly different problem from the bias variance trade-off. There, what you're trying to do is you're trying to uh, actually try to you know to, to capture these or at least measure how well you're capturing, um, and the idea is not to to throw that information away, um, but to 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 try and uh, you know capture as much of that as possible. And um, you know we used just, uh, simple mean squared error fitting, but you could of course uh, use different types of techniques for for fitting 
uh, if you really want to uh, maximize how many outliers are, are being captured. So I would say uh, nonlinearity is really the question. Do you really want nonlinearity in your application? And if so, uh, you know, to what extent are you trying to uh, pick up on sampling error versus uh, pick up on uh, actual sort of the signal? And of course, you won't really know anything until you construct what are called learning curves. And learning curves give the ability to understand with the increasing number of samples, how, do, how, does, the bio, how does the variance look? In other words, how many samples do you need in the data? If you have the luxury of, of, of having that, that enough data, how many samples do you need in order to reduce the variance? So that's another problem as well we didn't discuss in, in the talk. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you, Matthew. I think there are a couple of questions for Igor. Uh, I see like two questions on the YouTube channel and also a couple of uh, questions in here. So I'll try and consolidate a couple of them. Uh, so one question, a specific question is, um, you know, how can you model probability of trade execution? Um, and uh, could you use uh, reinforcement learning or inverse reinforcement learning for this kind of a problem? That was one of the questions, Igor. Yeah, <clears throat> so, so the difference between uh, reinforcement learning and inverse reinforcement learning, uh, as I mentioned uh, in, in my part, is, is uh, what you know, what you seem to know about the, the reward, which is actually, um, which is actually uh, maximized by an agent. Uh, so I think uh, uh, the setting which is most suitable for optimal execution is direct reinforcement learning. Uh, but this assumes uh, that that you know what uh, what the uh, reward or objective function that the trader is uh, maximizing, and, and usually uh, what is uh, uh, maximized in optimal execution is is uh, some sort of uh, balance between between the, the the slippage and the the risk uh, of the remaining inventory, right? Uh, so it's kind of similar to the mean variance optimization in the classical portfolio setting. This is one possible approach uh, to, to optimal execution problem. <clears throat> so, so if you believe in, 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 in uh, uh, applicability and relevance of your uh, reward function, then the enforcement learning would be the right approach. Now, uh, if you have uh, historical data obtained while exercising some, some execution strategy, and you want to make the reverse engineering of what actually was the objective function uh, of the agent, then you would be uh, better using inverse reinforcement learning. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. And uh, I think there was another follow-on question. Uh, similar to the cart pull problem we all familiar with, um, are there any specific financial data sets you would advocate for trying out reinforcement learning problems in finance? Uh, is it like is the implication a real world uh, data? I, I, I think the question is uh, just to try out reinforcement learning in the financial services setting. Are there like card pool like problems which you can use for benchmarking different kinds of algorithms? Yes, or, uh, right? the answer the answer is yes. And uh, one uh, kind of card pool problem is exactly what I presented in my talk. Uh, right, the other uh, card. Uh, poll type problem is actually the most classical problem of uh, option pricing, uh, which is uh, which is uh, pricing the European option, uh, put or call mm -hmm. option. Uh, so we have a chapter in the book uh, which outlines uh, uh, this model that we call 
QLBS, which stands for Q-Learning for Black Shoals Problem, um, which actually uh, does exactly that. Uh, so you can simulate your data, right? You know exactly what you do. Uh, you know exactly the model from which you simulated, and you even know the answer. Uh, the answer in some of the limiting cases will be given by the Black Shoals formula. Mm. So you can benchmark uh, in a complete, completely controllable setting. So it's exactly car, car, car pool type of problem. Yeah, and I'll just add to Igor's comment as well that for AI gym specifically, um, there are two, a couple of options. There is a, an optimal execution problem for market making, um, which we have in the book. And it's also one of the notebooks uh, that, that sets it up. It actually uses a a sort of derivative of ARGM called uh, TGM, Trade Gym, okay, which okay. is built off ARGM. And also we have the financial cliff walking example as an AIGM export. It's not in the repository, but we're happy to share that too. So that's just a note about code. Nice, nice. So those would be excellent examples just to, just to kind of you know, try out in a financial services setting. Um, so Paul, I actually had a question. Uh, I know we didn't get to the actual applications, um, so, you know, uh, when we talk about MCMC uh, in, in the context of finance, like, you know, what asset classes or like, which kinds of examples would you typically use these kinds of uh, algorithms? So here is an example. Can you guys hear me okay now? Yes. So here is the example. So you have a stochastic volatility model, right? Mm -hmm. So the evolution of your spot will be your observation process. Uh, the stochastic volatility itself will be the latent state. So uh, we want to understand the latent state given the uh, observed, for example, market prices, right? So we want to back out the stochastic volatility process. So this can be done in different ways. This can be done using, for example, the frequentist estimation where you run a particle filter. That's one estimation of your, uh, of your maximum likelihood. And then you, then you uh, basically maximize the maximum likelihood and you back out the parameters of the stochastic mm -hmm. volatility model. But the second way to do it, the Bayesian way to do it, would be to use Markov Chain Monte Carlo. And there are notebooks in the examples uh, that you can look at, the, the, those um, uh, where, where we use, Py, I believe we use PyStan uh, and, mm -hmm. um, or PyMC3. MC, and you can look at how that is basically done in the examples. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, I actually had a couple of other questions, and these are probably more. Um, I would say general compared to that of the specific questions which are associated with the lectures. I mean, in the summer school, in the last few months, we have had a diverse, you know, group of people who have attended the, uh, you know, the various sessions in summer school. Some of them come from a regulatory perspective; they're working as regulators and they are kind of figuring out, like, you know, how should AI and machine learning be regulated. And um, on the other hand, you have asset managers who are looking for you know, potential trading strategies or applications of AI and machine learning for trading and wealth management and portfolio management kinds of applications. Um, on the other hand, obviously, there are people who are interested in the, just the trading aspect of it and looking at, you know, historical data and potentially building out models. Now, um, though there are so many, you know, options in terms of uh, modeling possibilities, uh, we haven't really seen like you know established best practices in the context of machine learning wherein everybody vouches by these techniques as the method. So if there were success stories in your perspective, um, rather than just approaches which are potentially being advocated, 
what are those success stories? I know many quants don't like to talk about it if it's successful, but what are the success stories of machine learning which people have to think about? You know, if they're not using it, they're being left out. Kind of thing. So it can maybe just it's an open question for all of you. So you can even maybe each take a turn and uh, talk about those based on your background. Um, yeah, I'll jump in and then let Igor and Paul um, elaborate just very quickly. So in the book, um, we do actually discuss in chapter one, um, you know, the, this very the problem of, you know, uh, why or to what extent, it, you know, and, and what are the challenges, the barriers to adoption. There's actually a, a separate paper that just came out with Igor and I called the Four Horsemen of Machine mm -hmm. Learning and Finance Um that discusses some of the more um, you know conceptual problems. Um, it's not you know a straight shoot. Now, in terms of the top applications, um, you know uh, I think uh, you know Eagles can can speak to his QLBS model for hedging. Um, you know I've certainly myself I can I can provide a testament to asset management firms uh, working on the factor models, deep learning. Um, and, um, and I would say, of course, within, within trading, uh, optimal execution, uh, reinforcement learning, uh, those are definitely being used um, across banks and trading firms, Chicago, New York, elsewhere. Um, so I'll, I'll defer to, to Igor and uh, Paul for, for specifics and in the areas that they've worked. But just to mention that those are discussed in the book. Cool. Um, so Paul, uh, Igor, you want to take a stab at the question? Um, well, uh, you know, the, 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 our industry is, uh, is, is, is not very open, as we know, right? So, so people don't talk much about specific uh, things uh, that they do, and I'm not an exception either. So I'm not clear to talk uh, specifically about what I do at Fidelity, um, right? But, um, but as Matthew mentioned, uh, in, in, in my area of, of coverage, reinforcement learning, uh, definitely there have been lots of interest recently because there have been rumors. I've heard some rumors that some trading shops were very successful in, uh, in, in using reinforcement learning for trading. Uh, my own focus is uh, actually on rather on inverse reinforcement learning. That's, that's uh, my favorite topic. Uh, uh, not much is published there on, on this thing. I hope to be able to report some success, maybe on some future events after I'm cleared for this, uh, right? But uh, the, the other thing, uh, like, again, it's, it's, it's a little bit subjective what we call success stories, right? So, so, so we, can, we can differentiate between like uh, stories when you, I don't think there we have uh, examples when you can when you just cannot proceed without using machine learning in in quant, in quant finance, right? So always we, we have something else, right? So so always the question is like, what is the criteria of success? So to me, one of the criteria of success is is a conceptual clarity of mm -hmm. of what we do, right? And how we put, you know classical quantitative finance in more general framework, how we can take a look at this from outside, how we can connect, like, for example, given this example that I mentioned of Black-Scholes model, right? how exactly Black-Scholes model connects to machine learning? If you look at the Black-Scholes equation, there is no connection at all. Right. It's not, it's not on its own, it's not optimization problem, right? It's some sort of a differential equation 
which gives you one number, which is the price, which is the fair price. And some people, some, uh, some practitioners uh, whom I know uh, are very critical of this whole concept at all because they say, well, it misses half of the answer. It misses the, the whole range of questions about the risk of mishedging risk, right? So the classical model doesn't tell you anything about that, right? And it's a, it's a very severe drawback in my view, right? So, so when you look at these things from another perspective, from the perspective of machine learning, then you do see the connection. And the connection mm -hmm. is actually very simple. As long as you stay with discrete time, dynamic formulation, dynamic programming formulation, then you clearly see all the elements of machine learning. And that's exactly what we explained in the book, right? So, and then it's very obvious what is the problem that you're trying to solve. You're trying to solve the problem of reinforcement learning, of maximizing some sort of risk-adjusted return, if you wish, right? Uh, so, so, and then once you understand that, then you can establish links with the classical mm -hmm. finance. Then you can find, okay, what are the circumstances under which the classical finance works well? We know them, right? So the market should be liquid, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We just don't know how to quantify them, right? right. What right. are the criteria? What is the, what is the requirement? How liquid they should be? Uh, what, is, what are the criteria? How frequent should be your rehedging, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so to me, like, this is a very important part of the whole thing, right? Not, you know, boasting like PNL numbers, this number versus another one, but rather understanding like how it all fits into one unifying picture. Absolutely, absolutely. And we had a, you know, a few weeks back, we had uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Agus Sargento from um, um, Wells Fargo. So he kind of you know, presented similar thoughts. And I think uh, he was coming more from the perspective of model risk, especially yes. for machine learning models. And uh, you know, one of the themes in the summer school we are doing is we have had a you know, one track with eight weeks of machine learning. So we're kind of you know, looking at each one of the themes and slicing and dicing, understanding the evaluation criteria, the algorithm specifics, the structuring of the problem type of thing. On the other stream, we are focusing primarily on how do you think about model risk for machine learning models? How do you validate a machine learning model? How do you think about uh, you know, evaluating you know, stress tests and scenario tests and edge cases for machine learning models? Uh, I know, uh, Matthew, you had a couple of comments on the interpretability side of things, primarily for deep learning models. Um, now, I've also been looking at the whole notion of explainability, uh, which you know people talk about, you know, uh, various ways in which you could, irrespective of the model you've used, will be able to like try and explain the results or do other things. Um, so what are your thoughts in general, like, you know, if a company is either adopting machine learning or considering adopting machine learning, um, how should they be looking at model risk in general? Because, you know, it's a novel area and uh, while people are excited about the promise of machine learning, but there are also these hidden risks which we haven't even discussed and quantified or even brought to the surface yet. And, you know, what does it mean from a fiduciary perspective? So your thoughts on that, you know, I can just open up the floor and maybe Paul, you can go first and then uh, Matthew and um, Igor, you can probably chime in. Uh, I think um, <clears throat> in terms of model risk, the, uh, the, uh, the entire framework of cross-validation, I think mm -hmm. is of critical importance. It's being able to uh, assess the performance of the model out of sample 
And when looking at the outer sample performance of the model, it's also about um, making sure that you're looking at the right metric. Um, so when you asked uh, where a lot of success is currently concentrated mm -hmm. in machine learning, there is uh, a group of uh, organizations called the algorithmic market makers. Many of them are non-bank algorithmic market makers, such as XTX, for example. Mm -hmm. They have been using machine learning very, very successfully uh, to trade in a very, very competitive environment. And they have, I think, very, very interesting approaches to validating their models, which they have to do because their profitability um, depends on that. Mm -hmm. So in our book, we actually, um, in, in chapter one, we um, actually look at a, a, a sort of a mini use case uh, in mortgage modeling. And that actually, uh, you know, the 2008 financial crisis is very much, um, you know, a sort of a sobering reminder of where things can go very badly wrong uh, from modeling. So, I mean, I worked as a quant at Lehman, um, you know, structured credit, you know, right in the heart of, uh, of, of, you know, the credit world. No one really uh, saw the crisis coming or very few. And if you look at the example, we look at a mortgage model, which tries to predict out 10 years, but it has siloed data gathering um, in, in it. It was based on a few variables, uh, mm -hmm. mainly based on sort of intuition, one dimensional sort of hand waving and trends. And really the reality of a lot of um, modeling variables is that you need to have a much more general data capturing process, capturing alternative data, uh, avoiding sort of bias, human bias in that data capturing. And also allowing for the fact that there are going to be, you know, you're not going to be able to visualize a lot of the effects, uh, mm -hmm. the interaction effects, nonlinearity. So I think machine learning addresses the problem of ultimately um, uh, sort of weaning us away from, as Paul mentioned, both in sample performance and also from this sort of very narrow data silo and uh, sort of very sort of human centric way of selecting models like FICO score, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and, and instead opens us up to this vast array of possibilities for how you configure models. Um, it doesn't um, limit us in terms of nonlinearity. And it also puts um, you know, the outer sample performance there. And I think there's a whole host of, of issues to discuss we don't have time to get into, but broadly separating them out. And I think Marcus Lopez de, uh, de Prado does this very well, is um, he discusses at a sort of meta level where machine learning is going in the finance industry, whereas we get down much more into sort of the modeling issues, the model mm -hmm. risk issue at the model level. And so, you know, anyone wondering, you know, should I, well, should I read this book when you read Marcus's book? Well, we, we really drop down into sort of, you know, the, the specifics of very, um, you know, well-written sort of well-worn uh, trodden models and what the specific model risks are within those ones. Um, and that sort of becomes mathematical in its exposition. Absolutely, absolutely. Igor, you want to add any? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, thank you for asking this question. Uh, the, the whole topic of, of model risk is very close actually to my heart because my first job uh, at JP Morgan before I became a desk one was in the model validation group and, and I was thinking a lot about model risk, mm -hmm. uh, right? And, and this is a very, very deep and very important topic. Uh, uh, you know, I was horrified, for example, like Matthew mentioned, structured credit. And when I did the uh, model review, I was looking into uh, very scary beasts called uh, CDO squared, which is CDO of CDO. And I was like horrified 
how much difference uh, you can get when you switch from one copula model to another one, mm -hmm. right? And what to do about that, right? So this is this is this is model risk. I think uh, like it's a very very multi-faceted, multi-dimensional question, right? So clearly uh, uh, there is no unique answer to this, and there are lots of uh, you know practical limitations. For example, one simple-minded approach to kind of get a sense of model risk is just to implement few different models, right? right? But it's not always practical, right? It's not always available, right? So I think, I think uh, machine learning, what uh, 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 additional uh, views, insights that can be brought by machine learning uh, are pretty much related to the flexibility of machine learning, right? So, so we can easily tweak, uh, we can tweak architecture in, in uh, let's say some generative models. So, so for example, like people work with market simulators. Uh, uh, I have a, I have a different uh, set of uh, you know arguments, uh, pro and cons of of using that for pricing, but certainly for as a as a measure as a kind of tool uh, to get a sense of model risk. I think it's very valuable because you can easily tweak. A little bit uh, uh, setting in your generative model, and then you get different dynamics, right? So it can emphasize the importance of uh, tail events, etc. Right? Mm -hmm. So it definitely gives you kind of better view what you can expect if you tweak your model a little bit, right? So uh, right. Uh, and and, uh, and because all, all things here are highly nonlinear. Uh, very often, uh, very small tweak in the model can produce huge differences, as in this example that I mentioned of CDO squared. Right. Absolutely. So, but but my view is that that the the right approach to controlling model risk is a combination of you know relying on first principles of kinematics of uh, like we should we should start with the the right uh, uh, the right foundations, right. So we definitely should not have models which contradict general principles, which contradict econometrics, which contradict right. physics, right? Uh, but or, or in addition to that, it's not enough, clearly, right? But in addition to that, the additional insights of reinforcement learning are exactly this flexibility. So you can massage model, you can look at this from different perspective, you can look at limiting cases when like, you know, everything becomes linear, so you can analyze it. You can consider, like in physics, uh, there is a very powerful approach of looking at things analytically and look at the different limits, right? How the model behaves in when you take this parameter to zero or to infinity. Does it make sense or not? And sometimes you 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 you, find, you you do this simple exercise and you find something like totally meaningless. And then you say, oh, okay, then I know that my, my framework is work. So I have to come mm -hmm. back and redo this part. Absolutely. It's a very exciting field. I, I was even thinking about some point about using uh, Vapnik support vector machine to, to, to measure model risk. Uh, it didn't go anywhere because I was distracted by some other things, but it's very interesting. Yeah, let's pick it up as a, as a follow on project after this call. Yes. Allow to kind of collaborate <laughs> on it. Sure. Uh, so um, actually, that's you know, you mentioned the market simulators. We, in fact, had a whole module on synthetic data generators. And using GANs for generating Wix data as a part of the summer school for our students to just get a feel for, like, you know, how do you kind of look at this whole notion of, you know, if you're thinking about model risk and you do not have enough data and you want to kind of, you know, potentially try out alternative scenarios. Um, yes. So I think we are getting very close to one o'clock. Um, we have a lot of 
uh, you know, a diverse group of, uh, you know, engaged participants throughout the world who are attending these summer school series. And I'm very much appreciative of, you know, your time and your, uh, you know, put, putting together all these amazing presentations and uh, contributing to the community as a whole. You know, one of the key goals of, you know, putting together this whole summer school was, you know, to bring in more discussion, openness and transparency and also engaging, you know, the thought leaders in the community to, you know, basically bring their work to the limelight, but also to make sure that we open up for discussion because there are so many of these concepts which are novel and many a times, you know, the, the, the proverbial black boxes, which anybody wants to understand become something's unreachable. And we really need to get into the black boxes to understand before we can even vet out whether it's appropriate for use cases. So I think, you know, contributing to those efforts through, you know, your rigorous research and writing a book is such a, is such a commitment and hard work. And uh, I really commend you for putting all this time to, you know, put together this amazing uh, piece of literature. Um, any last words before we end today's session for people who are either career transitioners born to understand data science and machine learning? Um, obviously, I, I get a lot of questions. I mean, I teach at Northeastern University in the business school and also in the engineering school. A lot of students, you know, they come in the last semester and say, say, you know what, should I take that one data science course or introduction to Python course? That way I can like, you know, claim myself to be a data scientist and join the industry. Um, obviously, there are so many things you need to understand, both from a finance perspective, the econometrics perspective, the optimization perspective, and now incorporating machine learning into bringing this holistic view of appropriateness of using certain kinds of models for certain kinds of situations. And that it, there is no like, you know, I think, uh, you know, Matthew, you were mentioning about the Kaggle thing, you know, there is no set problem wherein you're just aiming for one metric to achieve, right? Um, so how do you advise students? I know you're all academics, you're all kind of, you know, advising students. So how do you advise students who are embark or, or even career professionals who are trying to embark into this whole journey of machine learning? How do you, uh, you know, encourage them or what do you tell them as the best way to go about learning machine learning and applying it into, in, in, in their jobs? So maybe you can all, you know, have a few, uh, few last minute comments before we adjourn for today. Yeah, I'll just say something very quickly. So if you're a computer science or you come from an engineering or hard science background and find this is new to you, um, a bit of advice that was given to me when I first joined is follow the money. Um, understand what drives the financial system, where the money is, because that's where machine learning will ultimately uh, be uh, sort of most heavily deployed and you know, you, your own salary, your career trajectory and so on depend upon that. This first bit of advice. If you're on the finance side and you've worked in trading, quant, and you're trying to make the transition to machine learning, um, I would say that um, you know go back to um, your you know favorite sort of machine learning book, uh, get you know sort of cleared up or sort of clued up on on the math behind it, and then you know maybe pick up our book. Um, you know I'm, I'm biased, obviously, um, but I would definitely recommend um, getting yourself you know plugged into. Uh, as many resources as you can um, around programming uh, and, you know, realizing that it's a very fast-paced field and that it's important to lock on to the most important high-level concepts and not get too caught up in all the, all the toolkits, okay? Because that's just, um, it becomes then just a, a massive uh, sort of uh, overload of information. Absolutely. Paul, you want to add a few words? Uh, I will say uh, implement every model that you are interested in yourself 
and starts with the assumption that the model is rubbish and try to um, try to disprove that. Um, because a lot of people sort of start with this kind of uh, blind faith in uh, in uh, in a model, and uh, they basically start expecting magical results. So I think that and and without implementing this stuff themselves, they usually won't know uh, any better. Yeah, thank you, Igor. You want to have? Uh... Uh, yeah, I, I I wanted to add to Matthew's uh, recommendation uh, that uh, it's important. I think not just follow the money, but also follow your heart. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and do uh, like what you really uh, excited to do, right? And unfortunately, uh, uh, the quant finance is such a wild field that everyone uh, with different, uh, you know, skill set and, and, and inclinations can find something very interesting and exciting to do, right? So you can you can focus on data side, you can focus on software engineering side. Or you can do uh, uh, like uh, model building and focus more on math rather than on the implementation side. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, so, so there's plenty of, of things to do for everyone, literally. Right? The other uh, general advice that I would give is, uh, is also try to kind of, uh, you know, come up with some sort of a top-down view of the world, right? So try to see the connections between different, let's say, different uh, uh, approaches in, 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 in finance, right? So, so, for example, like one example, uh, option pricing is, is uh, often a thing which is, which is uh, taught on its own without uh, relation to the portfolio management. But, but actually, one is the limiting case of another, right? So, mm -hmm. so if you have a very simple portfolio which is made of a stock and cash, this is actually what is called replicating portfolio for this stock, right? So, so this immediately gives you connection between different things which are maybe like conceived first, like perceived first as, as, as not connected, right? So when I did physics, it helped me a lot, right? So when you start physics, you, you see so many things and you're lost, right? Oh, I have to learn this. Oh, I have to read about that. And then it's like eventually you end up with a mess, right? And only it takes time to, you know, settle down and see like to find like for each item to find its own box in, in this system right and, and, and to me uh, i think it's extremely helpful yep. thank you so much igor um just to let everybody know uh, people who have registered you're going to get an email and there's going to be a survey and uh, people who answer the survey we're going to raffle a copy of uh, igor uh, Matthew and Paul's book, and uh, please provide your correct information. That way, you know, if you are the winner of the raffle, we will mail the copy, the physical copy of the book, directly from Amazon to you. Um, so, thank you again, Paul, Igor, and uh, uh, Matthew, for you know spending our afternoon, uh, your the precious time, and your afternoon with us. And uh, hope to collaborate further, and uh, you know, see how we can you know bring more clarity and. Uh, you know, more advancements into this field of machine learning and finance. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for today's session of the Q Podcast Show. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit us at quantuniversity.com for upcoming events, courses, and to continue the discussion.